You are listening to the Mary Jane Society podcast, brought to you by Studio 420, a cannabis-friendly marketing agency. Thank you for joining the Mary Jane Society podcast. I'm Pam Schmiel, and our guest today is Sherry Tarr. She's the founder of 68 Partners, based in New York City. Sherry comes from the pharmaceutical industry, where she was a lawyer representing and fighting against companies in that highly regulated space before she jumped over to cannabis. She's a compliance and regulations expert and helps cannabis brands and licensed applicants get to market. She tells us what to consider and what to watch out for when launching a cannabis business. Let's meet Sherry. She is a wealth of information. Welcome, Sherry Tarr. <laughs> Thank you, Pam. It's a pleasure to be here. Really appreciate your time. Um, so please just tell us about your company, 68 Partners, and your background and how you got into cannabis and love to hear about it. Absolutely. Well, first, Pam, thank you so much for even thinking of me. I know that you're launching this podcast, and uh, um, I appreciate that uh, you invited me, and and, uh, I'll do my best to show up strong and powerful and provide you some good content for your listeners and uh, happy to contribute to this new podcast. It's very exciting. So I guess I'll start from the present, and then I'll I'll do a quick 30 and 30, 30 plus years um, in 30 seconds or so with a little leeway because I might go over. Um, so 68 Partners is my own consulting firm. We work exclusively with uh, life sciences and cannabis brands and licensed applicants, um, and we help them to build sustainable uh, businesses that commercialize safe and life-improving products. That's the essence of what we do. And we do that by focusing in three primary areas. The first is translating very complex, often confusing regulations, navigating those regulations and creating practical solutions uh, for brands and businesses based on those regulations, whether they be state, local, federal, and the matrix of all of those. The the second area is commercialization strategies. Um, The best way I can put that, what does that mean? That means how do we get these products on the market in an FDA regulated space? How do we help license applicants get their products, get their licenses first and foremost, and then how do we help them to build out their businesses? My firm and what I concentrate on and what I'm, I find myself pretty good at is we're the how to. So lawyers and FDA, they're the what or the what not. And 68 Partners is the how. Thank you for the regulations, lawyers. Thank you for the regulations, FDA. Thank you for the regulations. Um, thank you for the rules. Now what? And, and we're the now what? What do you do to, with those regulations to get your products on the market and more importantly, keep them on the market? And that leads to the third area of focus for 68 Partners, which is building commercial compliance strategies. I call it building a moat around a license or building a moat around the brand, a moat that's high enough to keep the regulators out. Um, And there's many, many of them as that we'll get, I expect that we'll get into that shortly and high enough to keep the regulators out 
and low enough, if you will, to keep the customers returning. So at a high level, those are the three areas. We are a full service license application consultancy and a full service brand commercialization consultancy. Mm, Wow. Interesting. So what was your background before you got into cannabis? Yeah, great question. Um, Thank you for that. Uh, I don't get to do 68 partners and, and help these brands get on the market and stay on the market and get licenses without a little bit of experience. In the pharmaceutical industry, I was a sales and marketing executive for Big Pharma. Um, So what does that mean? That means that um, I have firsthand experience um, getting FDA regulated products into the stream of commerce. And uh, there's some good news in there and there's some bad news in there. The good news is that I have a lot of experience and uh, firsthand knowledge of how to get and keep FDA regulated products on the market. And I learned from the best marketers on the planet, which is the pharmaceutical industry. I had a front row seat to how pharmaceuticals and medical devices are made and marketed, being responsible for launching many, many products into the stream of commerce and being involved in the decision-making at a very high level about how those products are made, how they're marketed. Uh, After 10 plus years of being involved, I flipped the script and became an attorney um, Mm -hmm. who ended up prosecuting the pharmaceutical and medical device industry for regulatory violations, specifically for deceptive marketing practices and defective manufacturing. So what does all that mean? That means when you've heard about, um, you know, drug litigation, I won't name them all, but very high profile drug litigations, um, I was involved in bringing those and representing thousands and thousands of people that were injured by defective drugs that were marketed deceptively. And I did that for over a decade at the highest level. I was in the courtroom many times and uh, once again, um, learned, had a front row seat to how those issues are litigated. And interesting, Pam, I had the opportunity many times to have to unpack for juries and other people involved in the litigation process. How did we go from a drug that was intended to improve some sort of an ailment or treat some sort of a disease to people who were catastrophically injured by that. And then demonstrating through the marketing practices and through the manufacturing practices and through the clinical trials and through the FDA deception and whatnot. And I say all of that and I share all of that to give you some insights into what then I have done for the last 10 years, which, in, which is 68 partners. So Mm -hmm. having seen both sides of the coin, how the drug industry does it and how the lawyers deal with those issues and frankly, cleaning up a lot of bloodbaths that the pharmaceutical industry created, I decided I wanted to be a part of the solution and and not cleaning it up at the end when the, after the damage was already done. And as a marketing wonk at heart and as somebody that is much more inspired by innovation, medical innovation than litigation, I started my own consultancy. I unhung my legal shingle. I mean, I'm still a a lawyer, but I don't practice law. I consider myself a recovering attorney. I advise, have advised life sciences stakeholders on how to compliantly and successfully commercialize their ideas. 
their products. And then just to bring us full circle, um, over three years ago, I found myself exploring the cannabis industry for a number of reasons. Number one, I'm much more interested in helping to commercialize products that are made from a plant, derived from a plant, then manufactured inside a manufacturing plant. I think that there's so much uh, benefit uh, that can be derived. And I started looking at it also from uh, the perspective of, to some extent, the wild, wild west in terms of regulations and compliance. And I wanted to be a part of helping to bring to market in a responsible way, cannabis-based products. All of what I had done and what I just shared really translates um, nicely into what I'm doing with uh, my clients and cannabis brands and licensed applicants um, in, in this exciting nascent space. Your knowledge and experience is so transferable, but it's, it's one of the most important components of getting a business off the ground is navigating all those difficult regulations and compliances. A company could just go under in a second if it's not done right. So your experience and what is going on in the cannabis industry or how, how to get into the industry it's, it's really valuable. So I be lucky to have, you know, your company behind a brand trying to get into the marketplace. Well, thanks for that, Pam. Um, uh, what do they say about that? Um, from your mouth to God's ears? <laughs> no, but you're right. In, in all seriousness, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of brands ask me, a lot of licensed applicants ask me, and, and a lot of, you know, interviewers ask me, how do I differentiate or how do I build a sustainable market in order to build a sustainable brand in order to build a sustainable market, whether it's New York, whether it's New Jersey, whether it's Massachusetts, and then in order to build a sustainable industry in my 35 plus years of experience dealing with commercialization and compliance issues in an, in a highly regulated space. It always comes down to the answer to the sustainability question is compliance. And it's not a bad word. It's a good word. Compliance should not be seen as a barrier. It should be seen as an opportunity and it should be embraced because brands that can be trusted to provide consistent quality and value, those are the ones that consumers will continue to buy. What happens when consumers buy? Well, the business grows. What happens when business grows? They pay more taxes into the state. What happens when that happens? The state makes more money. Um, and, and that same sort of reverse engineering applies for license applicants that I speak to all day long, ones that are considering pursuing a license, ones, uh, clients that I have that are pursuing a license or license holders. It's still uh, the sustainability question, no matter where you are on the commercialization spectrum, the answer is the same. It is, I mean, it's, it's inextricably linked to many other factors, but at the central artery is compliance, building compliant a culture, building compliant processes, and making a product and delivering a product that people can continue to rely on for not only safety, but quality and, 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 and consistency. So what a great perspective, you know, I mean, when everyone hears compliance, it's, it's a scary word, but to say to embrace it for the reasons you just said is, you know, such a great perspective. A lot of people listening and a lot of people um, wanting to enter the market, the big question is, 
because the competition so, is so tough, is what should a prospective license applicant need to do to prepare to enter the New York market? And what will increase their chances of getting awarded a license? Like what, what would you tell someone, a client that comes to you wanting to enter the New York market? How would you help them? What would be the questions you would ask? And also, do we want to throw into this question international businesses wanting to enter the market? Is it the same, you know, we can separate it or, but. I can go with, I can go with that. I can pick up um, any of what you're throwing down there, Pam. Um, I can, I can take that in a bunch of different directions. And I hope you have all day because that's a thick answer. And it's the $60 million (laughs) question, you know. It's the $60 million question. Um, That's uh, right. You know, my time today um, is, uh, uh, free but not cheap, <laughs> as they say. No, no, right, I, right. Uh, uh, I say that um, with with uh, some humor there. Um, I understand this is a podcast, so it's only audio, and people can't see me smile. But I, I, I I'm <laughs> right. So, what I tell any, let's call them stakeholders, right? Let's just call everybody that's interested in getting into this space and thriving in this space. Let's just call them stakeholders. Stakeholders are brands. Stakeholders are ancillary businesses. Stakeholders are license holders and license applicants. Stakeholders are investors. Stakeholders are endless, right? There there are state regulators uh, should take some notes what it takes to build a sustainable brand and get a license. So I speak to interested stakeholders ranging from all levels of experience in this space to I have zero experience in cannabis, but I I have property or I have zero experience in cannabis and I have no property, but I have money. You name it, uh, any number of different stages of experience and interest in the cannabis space. And I tell virtually all of them, again, this is just high level, not dissimilar what I what I share with all of them. And And by the way, that includes MSOs, that includes international stakeholders, whatever part of the industry you want to be in and wherever you want to be in it. Let's take New York, for example, because as you said, New York is hot, hot, hot. It will be the largest economy. It will be its own economy. Everybody knows that about New York. And that's why you and everybody else that I'm talking to and, and myself, we're getting calls all day long about quintessential question, how do I get in? So first and foremost, and I draw a lot of analogies from sports. Um, before you start playing in it, you need to know the playing field. You need to know who the players are. You need to know what the rules of the road are, what the regulations are, and then you can set a game plan. Let's apply that analogy uh, to a, a prospective license applicant. Let's say that they're not even based in New York. Well, you need to first get boots on the ground then. You need to find um, experienced professionals, experts in that location. So for example, I just finished a call with an MSO that does not have a location, uh, does not have residency business or or otherwise in New York. And they're savvy, they know this, they have a replicable model to apply from other states where they've acquired licenses, but they need to have boots on the ground, somebody that is plugged into the regulatory landscape, somebody that is plugged in to the political and the um, community landscape as well. And then somebody 
uh, to help them on a regular basis to navigate what those regulations are that are unique to New York, how to set a strategy for whether it's commercializing your brand into New York, whether it's applying for a license in New York, it's all about setting a strategy. And in order to set the strategy, I, you know, you're a marketing person and, and I'm a former marketing wonk. And there's the, remember the, was it the three C's or the, the three, the four C's and the five P's or whatever. I'm going to give you, yeah. um, this is a uh, Sherry's own trademark, an acronym. I'm going to go with the five P's of, uh, of license application preparedness. Okay. What are the five P's that you should be, you as a prospective license applicant, uh, even an existing license holder who wants to get into a certain state? Fundamentally, this is not one of the P's, but fundamentally, every single stakeholder needs to, to start with the premise that this is a business. Cannabis is a business. It's fun, it's high energy, um, but it is a business. And you need to approach approach your license aspirations with as much intensity and seriousness as you would any other business. And as a matter of fact, uh, we'd be wise uh, to learn not the bad lessons because I'll, I'll keep you out of those ice patches and icebergs. All right, so let me cut to the chase and get to the five Ps. No matter where, what the status of the legal, the legal market is. So for example, even in states that haven't legalized, but particularly in those that have, and specifically like New York, where we've legalized, but we don't have the regulations yet. We have a regulatory framework, but we don't have the details of the regulations. It's a blessing to be given the time, I call it that window of opportunity to prepare between legalization and when the RFA, the request for applications for licenses drop. Um, and during that time is where the regulations um, will, be, will be crafted and developed. That's the time to focus on the five Ps and here they are. Focus on people, focus on products, focus on property, focus on your processes and focus on your profit. So let me unpack those. Um, people, you have to have a team. You have to have a, a, a team that is skilled and functional so you can put thousands and thousands of words on paper in your business plan and in your license application. But if you don't have a team to execute a business plan or a business strategy, then that business plan or business strategy is that tree falling in the forest and you didn't hear it because you weren't there. If you don't have the team, if you don't have the people um, to execute on what you're promising to the state or to your investors that you're going to do, then you basically don't really have the, the essential pillar for your brand, for your business, for your license application. So people is the first. Use this time, use this window to build your team. Property, you hear in real estate, location, location, location. And to some extent that's relevant to brands and license applicants in particular. So property, what kind of property and where? What kind of property do you need? What is, your, what is your license aspiration? Uh, when I consult with a lot of applicants uh, with a dream, we, we unwind the whole dream uh, to determine which license type is most suited for what their 
exit strategy might be or what their brand strategy might be or what their long game might be or what their investors want or what their skill sets are. So it's great to have a dream, but let's align your dream with your means. And, and that will inform your property determinations, right? So if you're going to be a cultivator, well, that's a totally different type of property than if you're going to be a retailer in New York City, right? If you're going to go for a consumption lounge, obviously, that's going to be a different type of property. But in any case, the property determinations need to be made and need to be sourced. And those kinds of decisions are in, intensely regulatorily based um, and also based on the local community and whatnot. So the third is processes. Processes, this is the time to start thinking about and, and start to construct your all of your SOPs, all of your quality processes, your compliance plans, your grow processes, whatever license type it is, and there are eight in New York, whatever those are in, in the country, whether it's cultivation, whether it's micro, whether it's craft, whether it's retail or consumption, it is very process intensive. A licensed applicant will need to, will spend dozens of pages explaining to the state how not only that they know what the regulations are, but describing how those regulations will be integrated and applied inside their particular operation. And teams would be wise to start thinking about those processes right now. Um, the fourth, and these are not in any particular order, they're all the pillars. The fourth is a profit plan, because at the end of the day, what did I start with? I started with the fundamentals that this is a business. So call it a business plan, but I call it a profit plan, because at the end of the day, the business plan should demonstrate what your profit plan is. What is the ROI to the state? What is the ROI to your stakeholders, your investors? But when you're talking about a license application, ultimately, the state wants to see that you have been thoughtful that you have a plan with your processes through your team at your location to uh, generate profit. At the end of the day, yes, it's about social equity, very important. Yes, it's about righting some wrongs. Yes, it's about getting quality products on the market that improve the quality of people's lives. Yes, it's about all of those things. At the end of the day, to the state, it is about all of that and how are you going to generate money for the state and build a sustainable business? So the profit plan and the fifth, and again, in no particular order, what are your products? What are you producing? What are you, you know, what's your product plan? Is it, you know, actual products that you're gonna retail? What are they? What is your, as I, as I call it, um, what is your lab to label strategy for quality and safety and compliance if you're growing? That's your product, so you have to have a product for whatever it is that you are going to be licensed to do, whether it's cultivate, sell, process, what are those products? So those are the five Ps, people, property, processes, profit plan, products. I made that up. That's a Sherry Tar acronym. <laughs> and, you know, it, to, to a large extent, while that does absolutely specifically apply to licensed applicants, it also, to a very large extent, applies to brands. No brand, particularly in a highly regulated space like cannabis, can be made in a vacuum. The brand has to consider what their long-term strategy is. What are your exit strategies? What are your exit interests? What's your vision? What are your messaging? 
Um, and then people, I think, really, really underestimate how complex it is to commercialize an FDA regulated brand. It's not just, oh, can you have a look at my website and tell me if my messaging is compliant? It is a thoughtful process with many, many moving parts for which you need experienced professionals that not only know how to navigate what the regulations are, but how to do them in a way that actually puts your product on the market. So it's kind of a, a it's kind of this intersection where I sit, frankly, at the intersection of cannabis commercialization and compliance and approaching the brand strategy and the brand launch and the license application through the same integrated lens. How do we build this business and do it in a highly regulated space vis-a-vis -vis do it compliantly? That was a super long-winded answer. I bet you later you'll chop, chop that up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, I mean, that that is the main crux of the whole challenge of getting a business launched in the cannabis industry is the intersection of compliance. I mean, that's what scares everyone and not many people ha have that knowledge or talent how to navigate that because it, and it's, it's a make or break deal. You know, if, if you do it wrong, you can get into a lot of trouble and it's easy, and it's easy it can, to get in trouble because usually uh, what happens to these businesses is one violation, one issue. Typically, it starts with the label. Some issue will trigger a much larger investigation, because quite frankly, if you're cutting corners one place, it's not unfair for a regulator to assume that there's probably some corner cutting going other places. And you use the word, Pam, I, I want to pick up that word that you threw down, which was compliance is scary. And I believe that context is decisive. And I think words have meaning. So if you turn around compliance and see it as, an, as a competitive advantage versus a scary thing, I'll tell you what's less scary than the FDA to me right now because the FDA hasn't changed its tune in 80 years. And if, if people are waiting around in the cannabis space for the FDA to you know, create some new set of regulations for the cannabis industry to uh, comply with, it's not gonna happen. As a matter of fact, and I talk about this, I, I've done so many talks about this, and I made a bunch of predictions three years ago, two years ago, one year ago, and they all came to be realized and to be validated about what the FDA was going to do, who they were going to warn, you know, what they were going to do with, with these proposed new regulations. Here's the thing. I'll make the same prediction I made 10 years ago, three years ago, and one day ago, and that is that the FDA has already shown us what their coat is. They've already shown us that essentially they're going to be applying the same set of rules and regulations that they've been applying to the pharmaceutical and medical device industry in terms of how products are overseen, how they are branded, how they are marketed, how they're manufactured. And you know what? I'm going to say this. I believe to some extent that's the way it should be. These products can do a lot of good. And yes, is there a history, a long history, centuries, some would argue, of um, data, anecdotal, that uh, speaks to the benefits of the cannabis plant. But nonetheless, this is a product that is being 
um, put in the body or on the body. And therefore, shouldn't people, consumers and patients, know what's going in their body, what's going on their body? Now, don't get me wrong. I am absolutely not advocating that the regulatory barriers to entry should be as high as they are for the pharmaceutical industry. I absolutely differentiate pharmaceuticals um, in many, many, many ways, but that's podcast number three for us. But, and I do believe that there uh, should be different regulatory requirements for cannabis-derived products, hemp-derived products. But that said, what's important, the important practical takeaway from all of this is, but the FDA is, is not making an exception um, currently, and they haven't for years, and it doesn't look like they're going to. And so they're applying the same set of rules and regulations and oversight as they have in the pharmaceutical industry. So it's, it's, if you just accept that as a brand or a license applicant, and then hire people that know how to help you avoid those black ice patches, I call them, and those icebergs, and how to navigate those existing regulations and bring your products to market. The great news is, as a recovering lawyer and as somebody that knows where those ice patches are, knows where those icebergs are, I, I don't have extreme views. In other words, I, uh, what you'll hear from the FDA and frankly from a lot of lawyers is, I call them the memo of no's. It's the very expensive memo of no's. Here are the regulations and here's what you can't do. And then there's the people on the far, I call it the far end, if you think about a football field. So you've got on the far, you know, on the 120 yard line or 130 yard line, you got the, the no's uh, because they've never commercialized an FDA regulated product. So they're just very strictly following what the regulations are. And then you've got the other people at the other end saying, this product shouldn't even be regulated at all. It's a plant. We should just have, you know, well, frankly, neither of them are right. And both of them are irresponsible when they come out with those extreme views. So I, I call the way that I advise clients, I'm, I need to get you brand, get you licensed applicant inside the zone of reasonableness. What can I reasonably say about uh, my product and what it offers the consumer? What kind of messaging can I convey on my website or on my label or when I talk about my product um, transparently and accurately represents what's in my product and what my product can do without misleading or overstating or overreaching. I say to clients, have enough faith in the quality of your product and what it can do for people. You don't need to overreach. You don't need to get yourself inside that zone of unreasonableness. You don't need to overextend and make a claim that, that moves you towards the, the risk, the exposure ledge, if, if you will. Sorry, I meandered a little bit, but the, but the point is that there is a, instead of being scared, I know I, for myself, when I'm nervous or scared about something, it's usually because I lack information. It's usually because I don't have experience in that area, so I'm fearful. I just need information. And I, I suggest bring in people that will take the fear out of it and provide you information and give you a path forward inside a highly regulated, highly risky, highly expensive 
and highly competitive marketplace. So, and I guess the, my only message, the other message is it's not the FDA. If you're prepared, if you're compliant, uh, if you're transparently marketing a product that's safe, that um, is compliant from lab to label, again, another Sherry Char trademark, um, then you, you need mm -hmm. not fear your regulator. What we all need to fear and who we really should be wary of and mindful of are the irresponsible actors, the corner cutters, the people that are rushing to market, the ones that are maybe um, embellishing on their product claims or their license capabilities only to grab for you know a front row seat in the licensing process or to get a get your product on the market if you're a brand that's trying to grow i can tell you in the long run any shortcut you take now will put you way back behind the pack and behind the clip you know the clipboard of a regulator and that's not where you want to be wow great advice yeah it's pretty simple but it's it's it, that's you know really great advice it's not complicated sorry it's not hard it may be complicated and complex but it's not hard to do the right thing um it's harder mm -hmm. to fix it after you've cut the corner um so sorry i'll just leave you with that you can tell here i'm i'm passionate about it because i really want to see these brands and licenses uh, license holders and applicants be successful. Um, and, and it's been happening for decades that brands are doing this and the ones that are doing it right are sustainable. And building a sustainable brand is not an accident. It's a strategy and it involves um, the intersection of compliance and commercial and regulatory strategy. So, um, sorry, let me give you back the mic. <laughs> Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. Listen, I listen to so many podcasts. And I just feel like if you're having someone on a podcast, I want to hear what they're saying. So many, listen, I don't have that knowledge. I just want to hear what you have to say. So to me, that's, yeah, take it away. You um, have your finger on the pulse in New York as far as what's happening in Albany. I know um, you're a director on the New York City Cannabis Association, um, you know, giving your time there. Uh, helping to move the industry forward, um, which is benefits many people that you have, you know, given so much of your time and ex expertise there. So what can you just say just about that committee? Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll provide some uh, insights to the sort of the whole situation, the whole landscape in New York. And thank you for acknowledging um, my work with the New York City Cannabis Industry Association. As the co-chair of the regulatory committee over the last year and a half, I absolutely had um, substantial role and contributed with other people to comments for the hemp regulate the CBD hemp regulations that actually have already came out. And much of that will also be used as a basis to craft um, the regulations for the licensing applications as well. And you're right. I'm plugged in as best as any of us can be without being on the OCM, right? So uh, from a high level perspective, so we all know, uh, for, and for those of you who are, are new to the New York scene, um, the Office of Cannabis Management has been established. All of the um, directors uh, uh, have been appointed and uh, they've already had two meetings. And 
uh, you are correct. Um, but let me just really refine what you said about, you know, the latest quote unquote announcement. Look, what the OCM is and what the Office of Cannabis Management does is set up the framework uh, and the people that will oversee uh, the framework for the adult use licensing process. And anybody that thought that that was just going to take a couple of weeks clearly didn't have a lot of experiencing, experience setting up a regulatory framework in an adult use license, license uh, state. Um, of course, it was going to take some time. Is it a little bit, I suppose, on, on the one hand, it's disappointing uh, the recent news that they're not, they don't apparently are not looking to grant any licenses for 18 months or so, but that doesn't mean that um, the regulations won't be being developed during that time. And quite frankly, whether it's 18 months, eight months, eight weeks, eight days, eight hours, the time to start preparing for your license application is yesterday. And any quote unquote delay um, associated with the, uh, the RFA, the um, request for applications in any state um, uh, should be seen as a gift um, because the license application process is not a DIY project that you do on the weekend. Um, it is a comprehensive, costly, intense, um, time-consuming, uh, uh, expert-involving, non-templatable process. Um, as I, you know, described earlier, as we discussed earlier in the podcast, those five Ps, each one of them is 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 absolutely critical and time-consuming and resource-draining. So the time is yesterday to get going on that. That said, let me drill down just a little bit more. It's not that I have like inside baseball uh, to give to, to give you. Um, it is a it is more perspective, and that is that it could be it could be sooner. Um, and even if it is 18 months before the first application before the license the first license is awarded, because it's the way I understood it is 18 months before a license is granted. Well, guess what? There's a whole process that needs to happen for to even to get to a license granting. So probably the applications will drop, the, excuse me, the RFA, the request for applications, that is the licensing application, will, the process will open long before 18 months because it takes several months to select and to get those applications reviewed and the license awarded. Does that make sense? So it's, it's not 18 months that you have to get yourselves together. It is 18 months is what Tremaine Wright shared before the first potential license is granted. And even then there were some caveats and if this, then that. Um, the point of it is, here's some good, here's, and I said I would give you some perspective, some insights and perspective. Here's some perspective. Having worked in other states, other competitive states, uh, during the window between legalization and when the RFA dropped or once the RFA dropped. I've, I, my team has worked in uh, and I have helped brands launch in other competitive states, whether it be New Jersey, Massachusetts, Illinois, uh, other states that have uh, licensing programs, no matter when the state legalized Eventually, there was a licensing process and there was a set of regulations. So for New York, for all the New Yorkers that feel disappointed, 
I would embrace, I would turn that around. Again, context is decisive. I would turn that around and embrace this as an opportunity to get yourselves to get, get your, your people, your processes, your profit plan, all of the things we talked about, get that together, um, be prepared. And if you're a brand, this is an ideal time to start building out your brand. Um, this is a tremendous opportunity to build out your brand in, in, in the country, including in New York. And then if you then want to go for a license, you'll have a really robust story to tell that you've already been a successful brand. Um, so I say, this is where my sort of, you know, when you've seen enough experience, when you've seen enough different situations, nothing really freaks you out. When you've got 35 years of dealing with shifting regulatory landscapes and, um, you know, uh, crazy situations, you just learn to sort of pivot and take advantage of time extensions that have been given you to make your brand better, to get your uh, business plan together, to get your finances together, etc. Um, the other per perspective that I want to offer is, uh, and I started to get to it a second ago, every single state that legalized eventually had a licensing program and New York will too. So, um, you know, look, the Stanley cup, you don't win that in the first month of hockey, you get your team together and you play the game and then the Stanley cup is awarded. And just because it's down the road, do you not start? No, just because it's competitive. And, and, and only one person will, will win the Stanley Cup. Do you not prepare your team and your players um, and, and all of that? Sorry for the rough analogy, but um, you get my point. Um, prepare now for success later right. uh, because the, the, the regulatory scheme, the licensing scheme in the state of New York will be put in place. And the license um, applications and the license awards will go to those that are most prepared and put forward the most compelling supported application possible. And that doesn't happen overnight. And if you've been given 18 months, actually, no, I'm going to say, I'm going to say less than a year before you start putting pen to paper in that application process, Now's the time to start getting ready. Because it's going to happen. One way. Right. It's going to happen. happen. Right. Right. It's going to come. Wow. So, it, you know, just everything you've said, I, it, this has all been such great advice. I, I really, I, I don't even know what I've missed. I feel like you've covered everything. Like what, you know, what, what you need to consider to, to win a license. It's going to be based on, I mean, that was my next question. What other besides the five P's would get you that license? Is it knowing someone? Is it, it I, I think it's just preparedness. Like you said, uh, I, I'd be giving away all of my, uh, mm. uh, my secrets. Um, and uh, look, it's a, it's a comprehensive, complex, multifaceted process. And how licenses are awarded is multifaceted. And at the end of the day, at its core, the best applications that demonstrate the most convincing, supported plans to execute 
on the license once it's awarded, uh, sorry, the, the license will be awarded to. In other words, the things that you can't control, you can't worry about them. What you can control is, is what you do and what your team does and your product plans, your profit plans, your processes, your property selection, your engagement with the community, um, your retaining experienced professionals to help you, to help guide you through this process, to help you to write a persuasive regulations-based application that is differentiable is within your control. That is within your control. As a brand or license applicant, those things are within your control. The rest, only very indirectly can you control who you know, what the regulators are ultimately going to put into the licensing process. What I mean by that indirectly, I suppose, I mean, if you, if you as a brand, if you as a license applicant, you wanna submit comments, um, you know, submit your comments. But I wouldn't rely on, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be deterred. Let's put it this way. I'm very realistic. There are political issues. There are, and we all know that, um, particularly in states like New York, New Jersey, that's just reality. But you know what? You can't control that. And it's only one aspect of it. Build your best castle and, and put your best people in it and put your best, build your best moat around that castle and demonstrate to the state that you can be trusted with this very valuable, very important license that they will grant you. That, to a large extent, is within your control. Um, and this isn't necessarily to pitch my own services. I, I sincerely mean this. Hire people that you have carefully vetted, that have experience doing uh, what needs to be done to help you to launch your brand in an FDA regulated space, apply for a license in a highly competitive state, particularly like New York. Look, let me say this in, in a different way. Not, here's a, I, I'll say it, I'll use an analogy, uh, the analogy of medicine. So, um, just because you're a thoracic surgeon doesn't qualify you to repair an athlete's ACL. So are they a doctor? Yes. Can they provide certain information? Absolutely. But do you want your thoracic surgeon repairing your ACL? Probably not. Who do you want repairing your ACL? Get an orthopedic surgeon um, that's highly skilled, lots of experience having done that, right? So in a similar way, build a team of professionals and experts that have the requisite background, training, and experience to give you the guidance that you need. Not every lawyer has, any, has experience in cannabis, let alone compliance. Not every lawyer has experience in FDA. Lawyers play a particular role in the license application process and with brands, uh, but few, um, but not, not, not the primary role. They are part of the team, but not 
the, the lead or, if you will, in almost all cases. Um, that isn't to trash lawyers by any means. Absolutely, there are they are needed. They, they perform particular functions um, that only lawyers should be performing. But license applications are generally written and submitted um, and assembled um, by license, uh, experienced license application consultants. I, I guess the takeaway, the, the primary takeaway is if you are a stakeholder, if you are an interested stakeholder in the cannabis industry and you're looking to get into a particular state, whether it's New York or any place else, whether you are experienced or no matter where you are in, on the experience spectrum, don't be scared, just be informed and hire people to help you. I know what I know and in areas that I'm not experienced, I hire experts. Um, and even if, even as an attorney, it's like a dentist, oh, right. a dentist I'm probably not going to perform dentistry on myself. <laughs> right? Even, even I, I mean, especially I, the cool thing about being a recovering lawyer, Pam, is that, um, um, I don't have to be the smartest person mm -hmm. in the room and I don't have to pretend to know everything. I, I know what I know and, uh, I deliver that and, uh, whatever I don't know. I bring in um, complimentary experts and professionals that can provide that particular service um, or that particular area of expertise. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is get ready yesterday and bring in, um, bring in the people uh, that are experienced in this space, navigating regulations, pivoting when the regulations shift, knowing the rules of the, the, the regional road. Like, you know, the New York landscape is, um, is, is very unique. You need to have boots on the ground here. Um, whether And that applies also in New Jersey, that applies in Illinois. Have people that know the regulatory landscape, uh, know how to navigate those rules and regulations, who are the players involved, and then, then you can create a, a strategic game plan for your brand um, if you want to commercialize your brand or if you're a licensed applicant or holder and you want to get an get, get a license in a particular state or if you're MSO, expand into a, a newly legalized state. Um, so I'll drop the, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll stop talking there. That's- uh, I'm so in awe of you. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no I am. I mean, oh, you've given us I so much information. Thank you so much, Sherry, for joining us. We really appreciate all of your advice, your expertise, it's invaluable, um, given your experience in the pharmaceutical industry, all you've shared with us. And I know you have some secret weapons back there for, you know, anyone looking to hire 68 partners to get them into the market. So where can someone find you if they want to reach out to you? Oh, thank you for that, Pam. And, and I enjoyed uh, the podcast. I hope I provided some valuable information to people. And as you said, if you want access to the, the secret sauce, the secret weapons, um, some um, experienced guidance and, and support for brands and licensed applicants, welcome anyone contacting me. Uh, Sherry at 68 partners is my email, um, S-H-E-R-I at the digit six, the digit eight partners.com. And we can take it from there. My website, uh, www.68partners.com. You can send me a note through the website as well um, and learn a little bit more about what I do and, and uh, what my team does. I think what, what's differentiable about the way I approach working with brands and licensed applicants and why I welcome anyone reaching out to me is I'm not looking to just accumulate clients and cases. I recognize that people have dreams 
they have visions. I see, I see it as a privilege and an opportunity um, to help people to realize those product dreams, those um, visions um, to help uh, improve the quality of people's lives. So I treat each call, each client, I treat them in a customized way. None of my work is templatable, nor should a brand be. A brand uh, cannot be designed and a license application cannot be written in a vacuum and it's none of it is templatable. And if anybody just gives you a cut and paste, I would just reject it. Your brand is as unique as you are. Um, your license applicant is unique to your team, unique to your business plan, unique to your business vision. So I welcome anybody reaching out to me. And even if you're just exploring and you just need sort of a, a little bit of a kickstart, we can have an introductory call and um, figure out a path forward. So thanks for that, Pam. Really appreciate the opportunity um, to uh, talk a little bit about the cannabis industry uh, at large, and then specifically this really interesting, exciting, not for the weak stomach, New York. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, thank you so much, Sherry. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks for tuning in and please give us a five-star review that helps us to gain more listeners and thanks for joining. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.